Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello there, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. So, just what is 109 pages long and could cost the financial services sector £710 million to implement? While it's unlikely this question will ever make mastermind, unless the BBC ever get round to replying to my series of letters, drawings and fan fiction, it will certainly be on the minds of every UK financial firm at the moment. Almost exactly a year on from the FCA's first consultation on vulnerability, their publication GC20-3, Guidance for Firms on the Fair Treatment of Vulnerable Customers, arguably provides the clearest indication yet from any regulator of the scale, expectations and costs involved in firms delivering this fair treatment for vulnerable customers. So what stands out in GC20-3? Has this revised guidance changed us fundamentally in the last year as the wider world has? And given it is still a consultation rather than final guidance, what might still change yet? Joining us today are three people so steeped in the issue, they can probably not only reel off the FCA's definition of vulnerability from memory, a vulnerable consumer is somebody who due to their personal circumstances is especially susceptible to harm, particularly when a firm is not acting with appropriate levels of care, but also quote chapter and verse from the new guidance. So I'd like to welcome Tim Hawley, who's head of customer vulnerability at Capital One, Fiona Turner, head of, good morning. Uh, Fiona Turner, head of financial inclusion, capability, and vulnerability at UK Finance, and Bailey Kersar. Morning, morning, Fiona. Ba- Bailey Kersar, co-founder and CEO of Tuco, whose mission is to help vulnerable individuals and their carers and families to better manage money together. Hello, morning, Bailey. Hi. Hello, Bailey. And with an equal interest and expertise are the hundreds of you um, joining us live today. So thanks for joining us. We already have your questions coming in, uh, many of which we will put to the panel, but there's always room for more. So do get them in early and you can submit, the, submit these using the chat or question box on your screen. So Fiona, Fiona Turner, we're going to get straight into it. Many people weren't expecting the guidance to be published until much later in 2020. So what does its publication in July tell us about the FCA's thinking, strategy and outlook? Good morning, Chris. In answer to your question, I think it's fair to say that this consultation has caught a number of us by surprise. Whilst we were expecting it at some point, I don't think there were very many of us that were expecting it on the 29th of July. And the reason for that is the industry's got an awful lot on its plate at the moment. In the last couple of weeks, We've had a number of consultations, all with a vulnerability angle. For example, the branch closure consultation, the call for input on deferral, on on payment deferrals. We've also had the consultation on debt advice levies, to name but a few. And those have all got a vulnerability angle, which means that the individuals that are on this call are all going to be required to provide input to them. But that aside, we're also dealing with customers on, you know, a very real-time basis. So given all of the operational challenges that firms continue to face with dealing with this pandemic, including the reorientation back into the workplace, why why would 
the FCA choose to do this now? Well, if you if you take a step back and just look at some of the numbers, they're pretty impressive. So, you know, 9.4 million people are on a job furlough retention scheme. That's a significant number of people. 60% of employers have made a claim under that scheme, which shows that the employment market is under extreme pressure. And if, as every day goes past, we see more and more um, major employers announcing redundancies. That makes all of those individuals potentially vulnerable. We've also got a million customers that are taking a credit card deferral and 700,000 that are taking a personal loan deferral. So when you add all of that up, it's a significant amount of people that could be potentially vulnerable as a result of this pandemic. And we also know that the latest Financial Lives survey has said that 46% of adults in the UK are showing some form of vulnerability. So that's, that's pretty significant in itself. But then if you look at the latest um, vulnerability data that the FCA have uh, developed, which took place between the end of February and the end of June, that says that says that there's approximately one and a half million more customers now that are potentially vulnerable since the beginning of lockdown, and five million people have got new characteristics of vulnerability since lockdown. Adding all that up, that's a 16% change in adult circumstances with regards to vulnerability. So if you then take a step back and look at the macro picture and think, well, what's a regulator going to do about that? I think you can only come to one answer, and that is that a regulator that's got consumer protection requirement and a statutory objective to ensure that all customers and particularly vulnerable customers are treated fairly, they're going to they're going to need to do something about it. And when they've got a vulnerability guidance in their armory, sitting there waiting to be published, they're going to want to get it out as quickly as possible. And that's recognised in the in the guidance document. So t Tim Hawley, it's it, is this uh, is this going to help the industry at the moment receiving this 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 guidance? Um, Fiona saying they're the scale of the problem the scale of the challenge. Uh, surely you should be, just be left to get on with it at the moment uh, and come back to this guidance at a later point. Uh, yeah, look, if I think about what's the key lesson from this year, right, it's that we should really be expecting the unexpected. So when it comes to the timing of all of this, I think actually um, you know, Fiona has put out the challenge around look at the scale of this look at the uh, kind of what's happening in the world at the moment and so i definitely say like we should look back and say this is something that we've known has been coming since 2015 right and so this guidance is you know one step in a very long journey that we've all been on about looking at how we can ensure fair treatment uh, for vulnerable customers and so you know from a timing perspective we could argue should it be a bit sooner you know would it have been a bit later but you know in reality the current condition is now is a really important time and with the fca coming out and actually just providing more clarity about expectations more context around you know the world and the environment that we're in and how that affects vulnerable customers 
I, I think that it's you know a really good time to be talking about it and, and landing that. And you know we can talk about like what organisations are focused on and like what's taking up their time at the moment. But you'll never have capacity to do everything you want to achieve, and that's you know why it's always essential to prioritise. And for me, this is a priority opportunity. And so I think you know it's landed at an appropriate time, and it enables us all to continue the discussion and the debate on this journey that we've been on for a long time. So Tim, does it does it make any difference though to what you're doing at the moment? Is this the case, and Kevin Steele uh, raises this as a question, we've seen uh, sort of Ofcom guidance come out, uh, UK uh, regulators network bringing out minimum standards around vulnerability. Is this a case of um, uh, rubber stamping this, it doesn't really make any difference to kind of what Capital One and the sector is doing at the moment. Um, it's a case of just ticking a box and allowing people to continue and getting this bit of paperwork out of the way. So I definitely don't see it just as a piece of like admin that, you know, we can go, well, at least that one's uh, done and dusted. I think, you know, we discussed the first stage uh, of this guidance and out of that, you know, many firms engaged on you know, questions around what they were really driving at, like, you know, what was really meant behind some of the words that were listed. And if I think about it as like a funnel, I see this second stage of guidance as just a narrowing and a kind of clarification of a lot of the topics were raised and I'm sure we'll get into that detail as we uh, kind of dive a bit deep, deeper into all of it and so I, I think it does make a difference I think it makes it clearer to organizations what is expected it starts to introduce you know how they will look at that in part of you know enforcement or you know working with them ongoing as they assess firms capabilities in this area and so it, for me it isn't just a okay we've just got that a bit of uh, paperwork published it is actually helping move the debate a bit closer to the end destination okay ba bailey turning to you um bearing in mind what uh, tim and fiona have said there this is a scale of the problem this is taking us in the right direction narrowing us down how do you see things, firstly? And secondly, what stands out for you? What's a real eye catcher in the, in the guidance uh, as, as has been published? Mm, yeah, good question. So I think, you know, echoing what Fiona and Tim have already said, it's a really important time to get this guidance out and for firms to be thinking much more about what they can do for their vulnerable customers. It is clearly going to be a very difficult, rocky road over the next couple of years. So this is absolutely pertinent at this point in time. And I think with COVID, there has also been an increase in, in consumer expectations as to what the financial services and other industries can do for those who are um, shielding, for those who are vulnerable in, in different ways. Um, and I think for me, the, the guidance really comes through with opportunities for all of us to, to share best practice Obviously, I come from more of a startup background, more of a, a small company background, and I'm really interested to share my experience with those who come from much bigger firms like Capital One. You know, that's that's part of how we can all learn and improve um, together. And to answer the question about what really caught my eye, I think this um, version of the, the consultation paper coming out really started to answer the question that I know you, Chris, have asked all the time, which is vulnerable to what? You know, how, how can we define how people are vulnerable and um, what their circumstances actually might be and what the potential for harm is there for um, within those different circumstances? So the, the new idea of the spectrum, 
the the new classifications that they've been giving people and that really helps throughout the paper i think to to give a lens as to to all of the different recommendations that the paper is is putting forward okay so what's this you make reference to the spectrum uh, being introduced and uh, like common common harms can you just say a bit more about what why why is that important to you and to what uh, tuco do yeah so the original um paper came out last year talked about um a kind of broad definition of, of vulnerability whereas this new paper coming out very much has taken on board i think feedback from lots of people in the industry that it was too much of a a large cloud and there wasn't very much specific stuff to really get to grips with so there was two really great um pieces i think in the paper one is a table that starts to unpick the various categories of of types of drivers of vulnerability so health life events resilience and capability um this is stuff that came out of last year's paper too but this is makes it much clearer i think in this new version and then the spectrum of vulnerability, I think, is a much better way for the FCA to to put forward this idea that half of adults at any one time, at least pre-COVID, were in some kind of vulnerable circumstance. That can feel previously probably like quite a difficult thing to wrap your head around, where you have a category of people who are vulnerable and a category of people who aren't vulnerable, which is the wrong way to think about it, I would argue. Whereas this spectrum of vulnerability starts to to build that out into okay, everyone is is vulnerable to certain things at any one point, but we're all on this spectrum as to where we are if we um, are, are at a fairly stable point in our lives versus maybe we have complex needs that um, are starting to 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 build on each other. If we have job loss, if we have um, mental health issues, if we have other other types of vulnerability altogether. All so for me, this this idea of a spectrum makes more sense. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but I, I think it's a much better way mm -hmm. forward than we had last year. So, so Fiona, we, we we've heard that uh, from Bailey's perspective, one of the things that really caught her eye was um, so the clarity. So there's a refinement going back to what Tim was saying there about narrowing the focus. Bailey's added there the dimension. Of, of clarity and I, I'm guessing for the FCA may be thinking with furlough due to end in October and uh, payment holidays ending around the same time that having this guidance clear guidance in place is, is really really important so aside from that clarity what, what's caught your eye Fiona from the uh, from the FCA uh, guidance for consultation well, I think that's the key thing, and it's really welcome that the FCA have picked up on a lot of the feedback that the industry has provided and given clarity in a number of areas. We've already talked about the spectrum of risk, and I agree with Bailey, it's a much more helpful articulation of what the FCA were trying to drive out. We all know that financial services firms are very adept and professional risk managers, so this puts it into language that, that individuals will understand right across the organisation. It doesn't mean to say that that it's going to be easy to operationalise, still going to require a lot of thought, but I do think it's an improvement. In terms of other areas where I think they've provided clarity, one area that I'd like to pull out is the definition of natural persons. On previous reading of the draft guidance, I think it's fair to say it was never really clear whether or not SMEs were in scope or not. 
throughout the pandemic, we've seen the FCA issue guidance and we've seen them mention the fact that firms needed to give thought to the treatment of particularly small, small businesses and micro enterprises. With this guidance, they've now clarified that unincorporated firms will be in scope of the guidance. And that's really clear. It's black and white now. SMEs, micro enterprises are in scope. So we need to think beyond consumer. But that said, with regards to incorporated companies, they've also said that firms are still expected to meet the requirements under principle six, and therefore that firms might wish to be thinking about the vulnerabilities that directors of limited companies may have, for example. So I think that was a really helpful point of clarification. So for uh, small businesses, uh, sole traders that are not uh, incorporated limited companies, uh, the guidance 100% uh, applies to them. Uh, if you're an incorporated company, you can still be a, a small family business or a, you know, a, a one a woman or man band, but be a limited company, then those principles um, could apply uh, under the FCA list. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. That, and yeah. that's significant given, I mean, work that Money Vice Trust and Linden Standards Board have done before around small businesses, also the stuff that you've done at UK Finance as well. That That's a significant addition. But you had a second point that you wanted to add. To a second point, Chris, I think they've been very clear that it is everybody's job. And I know an awful lot of consumer groups were calling for a senior manager responsibility for vulnerability. And they've definitely chosen not to go down that route. What they're after is that this is everybody's job. And by it being everybody's job, it will then become completely embedded into the culture of the firm. It's got to become part of the DNA of the organisation. And that's the only way that they'll change the culture of the firm and that vulnerability will be something that happens naturally without us having to think too much. No, absolutely. Tim, so um, culture is clearly important. Um, and sometimes we can get lost in a word salad of, you know, uh, culture and right values and right principles that can take us round in circles if it's not handled correctly. But practically, what, what caught your eye from the guidance? Yeah, so there were three main parts. Some of them um, have caught the eyes of uh, fellow panelists, but uh, three main parts for kind of different reasons. So first one uh, was I really welcome to see the continuation on this emphasis of inclusive design uh, as part of product as well as service and the kind of deeply embedded in culture. Uh, reason why uh, I was really pleased to see that in there is that we've focused a lot of effort about how can we help to ensure that our culture continues uh, to focus on vulnerable customers and ensuring fair outcomes for those. And that you know, is a huge undertaking because a culture is just the collective actions of all the individuals. And so you know, that is very much a, a call out to how can you help and support all people in your organization to, to do their part of this and so that's a large undertaking and we've got uh, a 
ton of good work and thoughts on that. So that was one. Uh, the second, uh, as we've talked about, is this repositioning of potential versus actual vulnerability. Uh, so for those uh, diehard uh, podcast fans, part one of this that we uh, did, I know this came up as a, a good discussion and we talked quite a lot around actually you know um, it's better not to think of two distinct populations but um, you know everyone is potentially vulnerable and maybe taking that risk-based approach uh, would help and so uh, maybe the FCA were listening to that because that is what we've seen uh, come out of uh, the guidance so that was just uh, good to see and then the third and final thing that stood out for me, uh, as Fiona alluded to, was uh, I guess for the first time being more specific about supervisory activities. And again, back to that culture piece, that continuation of emphasis on it being part and parcel of all of the senior manager role to be able to talk uh, and be able to evidence how fair treatment of vulnerable customers is considered as part of their responsibilities and duties. So, Tim, just to kind of take you into a, a slightly different direction, and then I'll, I'll come to Bailey around the issue of scale, because clearly the FCA guidance that's come out, um, one of the things that stood out for me was a recognition of uh, proportionality in terms of the choices that firms can make around vulnerability, and also the fact for those, uh, we've, we've got many people on here listening who are debt advisors, this also covers debt advice, but we'll come to that in a moment. But, Tim, when you're up in front, of the, uh, the the FCA, they're on a supervision uh, visit. Uh, they're not only going to want words uh, and explanations; they're going to want data and numbers. And the FCA say, you know, throughout the document, uh, that the outcomes experienced by vulnerable consumers uh, need to be as good as those of other consumers. So, what do the FCA want from firms in terms of outcomes and data, and how should they get there? Yeah, so uh, you know, they've six clear outcomes that the FCA uh, talk around. For me, they are very broad topics, and so firms have to translate those into specific measures that show how well they're, how well they're achieving uh, against those outcomes. Um, data will be potentially very different uh, across organisations. You know, in Capital One, we have a vulnerability system of record that is available. Um, you know, to all of our customer facing agents that enables us to be able to know where we have disclosed vulnerabilities. Um, and then that enables us, uh, if we're looking at outcomes monitoring, to be able to see whether there's a difference in outcomes between disclosed vulnerabilities and uh, where we don't, you know, there's a non-vulnerable customer. But there is a clear distinction, which is as an industry, we still have some way to go to ensure that um, all consumers are feeling comfortable and right to tell us about the situations that they're facing and the challenges that they have. So um, we also need to be mindful that just because you're not, you've not disclosed, that doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable. It just might be that we don't know that yet. And so it's always important to look at your outcomes for your population overall, and then in particular look at outcomes for your disclosed vulnerabilities. And so, you know, as an example, we'd look at complaint volumes and drivers and look at the outcomes for the disclosed versus uh, for non-vulnerable. And what we'll be looking at is to see, well, is there any difference in those outcomes? And if so, why? Um, and I think that can enable organizations to be able to help evidence how uh, outcomes for vulnerable and non-vulnerable customers um, are at least the same, if not better. So the, the, the six outcomes uh, are, and I'm, I feel like I should put this to the panel as a, a bit of a pop quiz, but I'll do it quickly. One is around um, treating customers fairly. 
confidence in consumers. One's about uh, uh, outcome two is around design of products and services, so meet need. Outcome three is around information and keeping consumers informed. Outcome four is around advice and ensuring where it's giving it's suitable. Outcome five is that products perform as firms have led consumers to believe and services of good standard. And outcome six is uh, not unreasonable post-sale barriers are imposed by firms. So when firms are thinking about, and Fiona do come in here as well as Tim and Bailey, when firms are thinking about the outcomes that they seek to measure, Tim, should they start with those six and then build on from it? Or should they only do those six? What, what, what should be done here? Well, I think the six is a great place to start, right? Because that's where uh, the FCA have you know, laid out. These are the outcomes that we're after. Now, uh, as mentioned previously, you know they're broad, so you know you can't just measure that uh, based on the words that are on each outcome. You've got to then translate that into so what does that mean in terms of the specific measure? Um, I think that that will cover most of the outcomes that you're after. But you know, uh, organisations will be doing lots of outcome. Uh, testing, um, you know how products are performing, um, you know, outcomes that customers are getting in their interactions, and so you know for me this isn't starting at square one. This is around extending that and then validating that you see consistent outcomes uh, across your vulnerable and non-vulnerable population. So uh, Fiona, um, Connor Maguire has just uh, do keep your questions coming in. Connor Maguire has uh, pointed out that good outcomes seem to be used a lot more in the FCA guidance than fair. And Connor says that firms may treat customers fairly, but the outcomes may not always be good. How do firms square this off? We've got to get to that point where we're subconsciously thinking about this stuff. I don't think we're quite there yet in an awful lot of firms. So there's going to be an awful lot of work to do. But in terms of supervision of senior managers, they're going to need to be able to answer questions about how their particular area is dealing with vulnerability. And I think that's probably the right approach because otherwise it becomes somebody else's job and they've got to try and make sure that it's embedded right across the organisation, which is an almost impossible task. And I think that's hugely challenging. So I support the FCA's approach, but it is going to mean that you're going to get far more scrutiny and supervisory conversations throughout the year around this topic and individual senior managers will need to be on top of their game in terms of being able to answer the, their questions. So I think this guidance gives firms flexibility and a number of case studies show the sorts of expectations that the FCA have. They've said they definitely do not want to have cross-sector minimum standards. And the reasons for that are because the FCA is regulating a very broad range of sectors and this guidance got to be applicable to all of them. You know, that's from major high street banks to debt advice agencies to high cross credit firms to small brokers. And there's a great deal of difference in the operating models, both within size and scale across that spectrum. And this, this guidance needs to be flexible across that whole piece. Bailey, um, proportionality and scale. There's a lot of talk about data and outcomes and building the right infrastructure and culture. But when, when you're small, uh, how can you um, uh, apply the, uh, the FCA guidance in, in, a, in a practical uh, practical way? How, how do you approach this? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think on the six outcomes, they do cover a huge amount of what we do as a small organisation. So design is 
is at the heart of what we do. We're a, a six-person team at the moment, so you can imagine um, we're all very hands-on when it comes to thinking about design and development of the product. Um, and I think in terms of the proportionality point, um, I think the, the interesting parts in the guidance for me are around the nuance. So like inclusive design is a, a really great thing to see in there and focus on how firms can better embed inclusive design principles into their processes is really important. But there is also a tension there between an inclusive design approach versus one that takes into account more um, prioritizes more the the experience of someone in a specific vulnerable circumstance and it's that nuance that's maybe a bit difficult for for firms to navigate um, where at Tuco we we have um, a vulnerable population kind of at the heart of what we build for so um, inclusive design is something we can think about but actually we do prioritize the needs of that that vulnerable person um, and I think for larger firms and for, for more mainstream products, that's going to be part of the interesting um, nuance of how they can embed that culture. What is it that, that they can do that's both inclusive and and um, and goes above and beyond in terms of accessibility, but actually also goes deep into specific areas where people are, are, are vulnerable and, and how they can better build um, services for those people. And I think going back to what Tim was talking about, which was really interesting about measuring outcomes, it, it almost goes right back to that. If we focus only on measuring outcomes for those who are disclosing vulnerability or, or thinking about disclosure as our key thing that we measure against the kind of average population, um, that, that will frame a little bit how we then think about embedding that culture. Um, so it would be really interesting to think of other ways or other you know um uh ways to to find that 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 outcome um in terms of how we measure is it about someone's um, income being dropped and we can see that from their data if they are using a certain product is it um other other ways of gathering that information um rather than a, an outright just disclosure um because i do think that measure measurements are so key to this how do, how do we make sure that we are measuring the right thing so that the culture then hopefully follows. Um, so yeah, uh, obviously at Tuco, we're a small business and we, we have that at our, at our core, but that's what I'm really interested to hear more about as we um, kind of gather the best practice over the next couple of months um, and, and hear from, from other people. We're getting a, a oh, lot God. of, uh, go on Tim, please come in. Sorry, I was just going to say I've got some thoughts on that to follow on uh, from Ailey's comments. Um, I'd love us to also think about uh, this proportionality piece because there's something in my mind as well, which is you know, we talk about like 50% that's now uh, to 46%, but that's a kind of snapshot. And I think if we kind of all think about you know, our financial lives are not just a snapshot, right? They start very early on and they'll be with us throughout our entire kind of life and so when you put it into that duration I think it's worth calling out that nearly all of us are going to be vulnerable at some point in our lives so you know thinking that we will avoid ever losing a job or having a relationship breakdown ever having to deal with a bereavement of someone close to us or a health issue that affects our life is just not realistic to think that we're never going to have any of that happen 
uh, to us. And so, you know, that's not realistic. And, you know, I don't want to put a downer on your podcast, but as depressing as that might be, the question for us is when, not if. And when you put it in that frame, that's why it's really important that we start thinking about you know, inclusive design and how that is going to enable organizations to have the, the kind of right setup. And look, without sounding like I've come on to kind of plug my own book, which would be a normal uh, thing that, you know, you come on your podcast for. Um, I, I just want to call out, look, uh, we've spent a ton of effort looking at how we can simplify all of the different harms associated to a vast range of vulnerable conditions. So we had 68 of them. And, you know, over time working with our uh, design team uh, we've now kind of got that to a distilled set of common harms 10 of them with five mitigating approaches uh, and we're now looking at how do we disperse that in our organization so the thousands of decisions that are getting made every day by people at capital one how do we support them so that what they're doing over time is improving the lives of vulnerable customers and not unintentionally making them worse and now you know we, we could sit on that for ourselves, um, but we're not. You know, I want to ensure that we share and publish um, all of that. And, you know, if you're happy to kind of indulge us further, then in September, I'd like us to consider like how we could put that out to probably many of the people on this uh, call right now mm -hmm. to kind of show our workings of how we're tackling that so that hopefully, uh, you know, many of them can learn from some of the efforts that a large you know, number of people have been putting in at Capital One, but really to help develop on that work and then further that cause themselves. And and for me, that's where, you know, this guidance helps move us as an industry forward. Tim has, has, has raised uh, a, a, an excellent and broader point, and that is, and uh, we see this quite a lot in the work we do at the Money Advice Trust with firms, is that a huge amount is happening in some of the larger and medium scale firms in terms of investment in market research, uh, in designing new ways of doing things or using resources that are not available to smaller firms. But then that that expertise and these schemes and these tools that are developed are then locked into that organization and shared. And Tim was just saying that uh, Capital One are looking to uh, share their common harms uh, design approach work later in the year. What can UK finance do to encourage firms? We've seen it with Monzo and Barclays, but these are rare examples to actually share what they're finding out about vulnerability and, and, to, and to lead across the sector. So with regards to sharing best practice, I think the industry does need to share more, but we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we're dealing with products and services which by their very nature are competitive areas and we need to make sure that in sharing best practice we're not breaking competition rules. But that said, the FCA has written in the guidance that they would like trade bodies like UK Finance to help facilitate um, increased standards in, in a non-competitive way. Um, so we've got we've got some work to do on that. And one of the areas that I'm currently thinking about is how do we how do we facilitate that? If you look at the policy framework, um, we've got a whole range of different benchmarks and codes, some of which have been developed by trade bodies. Others have been developed by charitable organisations um, in, a, in a thought leadership way to try and inform best practice. And that's that's really helpful. But equally, um, on the other hand, we've got an ombudsman 
that is um, looking at best practice and that that can be uh, used as a challenge um, and it can become the minimum for everyone. So that can create a layer of tension and we need to really work out how we can get the best of both worlds and provide practical, helpful guidance to firms that enables them to consider the actions they need to take to be able to support customers better. So I'm going to go um, back to kind of Bailey and then I'm going to take a couple of questions. We've got a huge amount of questions coming in. And Bailey, it's kind of um, on, on, on one page of the guidance, the FCA say they want firms to understand the needs of vulnerable consumers. And then on another, they state, as we've heard already, that 46% of adult consumers in the UK are um, uh, susceptible to vulnerability. So how do firms go about doing, uh, following this design process uh, to meet uh, vulnerable consumers' needs when millions and millions of people are facing different types of vulnerabilities. How, how should they be uh, tackling this challenge from the FCA? Yeah, what a good question. Because um, And it goes back to what Tim was saying, which I thought was really um, interesting to hear. You know, Capital One all, already has clearly design processes in place, um, huge teams, and a, they're able to, to focus attention on, on understanding more broadly their customer needs, as most firms will do, right? You will have a specific business outcome that you want to achieve and a really important part of achieving that will be understanding the needs of your your potential customers so for me i don't think we need to rewrite the entire book and say that we're, we're going to put a completely new process in place it's about finding opportunities throughout the existing process to embed new ways of thinking new frameworks and new um, practical exercises that firms can really then start to drill down on some of the, the important questions that the guidance raises. So for me, hopefully, the opportunity is there to, to meet firms where they are now and then introduce the, the kind of one or two extra things that they can do in order to really start to tackle what the FCA is, is getting at in their, in their product design um, recommendations. And then over time, really think, okay, if we are gonna have a, a, a potential project or a specific um, team to really think about some of these issues, what would that team need to consist of? How do we staff that team? What would the culture of that team be? And I think that that for me is, is the meat of what it means to talk about culture, um, because it's easy for a, a, an executive to stand up and say that they care about outcomes for people in vulnerable circumstances but actually it's getting embedded into those existing processes existing teams and and everyone on the staff knowing as as Fiona was saying you know it's everyone's job so that's what I think the opportunity is here um and so in in kind of playing back to you your question how can we um put put product design for these people in vulnerable circumstances at the heart when it's almost half of adult consumers. Um, for me, it's about actually, can we find opportunities in the existing process as we understand those customer needs to really drill down on, on where and when people are in those vulnerable circumstances and how firms should be reacting and, and, and designing around those, those circumstances. Okay, well, it sounds like we're gonna have a busy autumn with uh, Tim's, uh, Tim's uh, publication. 
uh, or, or webinar coming out. And also, Bailey, your, your, your course with the Money Vice Trust around uh, design and vulnerability kicking off in the autumn. Tim, I'm, I'm going to come. There's a lot of there's a common theme coming out of some of the questions, and uh, Selena Ty uh, has, has raised it. So has Tony Franklin uh, and Andy Smy as well. It's all around disclosure. And uh, if I can paraphrase the question, the first first point that's made is there seems to be a lot placed on disclosure uh, mm. as 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 an approach. Uh, so Tim and um, you know, how much should we invest solely in this? The second point is, how do you deal with a, a customer who uh, is is vulnerable, has disclosed information to that, that extent, but it's insistent that they're not, that, uh, that will not engage, will not see themselves as, as vulnerable? How, how do you tackle that, uh, Capital One? Yep. So, uh, like the first universal one is when we talk about inclusive design, that's kind of the aim, which is regardless of whether you've told us or not, there's inherent protection built in. And then, you know, you remove the need to say, oh, unless you've identified yourself as vulnerable, then, you know, you're not able to uh, benefit from you know, this special treatment. And so target destination is that really it's less about whether you've told us or not, it's the fact that we've considered your needs and for extreme users, because that protection is baked in, it benefits you, but like it benefits all, right? That's the whole point of universal design. So I think that would be the long-term answer uh, for kind of like how that should be addressed and why I was so pleased to see that the FCA had emphasized that within product and service design. Um, I think the disclosure piece is a challenge because you know, we're not at a point yet where people would think it is normal to tell their financial services company all about what's going on in their life, you know, and some of that will be driven through, oh, I didn't realize that you wanted to know and how it could help me. Some of that will be driven uh, through, I'm not clear what you're going to do with that. And so there's needs on both sides to make a disclosure in environment a healthy and normal thing. And that comes through, you know, us communicating how we do provide support to people with mental health issues. Um, you know, the great work that the industry has been doing on supporting victims of financial abuse. So there's more that we need to do to elevate that conversation, which is like we're here to help. And as an industry, it's normal to tell us. Um, and then what you end up with is so how do you uh, create an environment which encourages disclosure? And that's by making it normal, showing people how that makes a difference. And then how do we remove the need for people to have to tell us? Well, that's the universal design principles. That's how I think about it. And that's how we are approaching it at Capital One. Fiona, got a question coming in here, and it's about cost. So the the FCA have for the um for the first time published a cost benefit analysis, and this is a significant step forward. And this estimates that implementing the guidance will cost financial services a one-off figure of uh, 710 million, and then 450 million a year after that across the entire sector. Now this is a significant sum of money at a time when resources are stretched. Are some firms going to see this as the pendulum on vulnerability, vulnerability just swinging too far now and asking far too much of them at a time when COVID-19 is already imposing these very large costs? I don't think so. The cost-benefit analysis shows that the industry is already investing approximately £1.4 billion a year on supporting the needs of vulnerable customers. And so whilst this is an additional 450 million in ongoing costs per annum, the reality is 
it's the right thing to do. It's absolutely right that we should be treating customers fairly, irrespective of their personal circumstances. And we do know that sometimes our products and our services don't work well for people. So what can we therefore take from this cost-benefit analysis? Well, I think the first thing is that it can be a helpful tool for people. So if you're responsible within your firm for developing out your strategic uh, journey for meeting uh, and delivering on this guidance, then this could give you indications as to where you may need to consider uh, improving your products, your processes, or even even uh, creating operational efficiencies and, and developing your staff. So I think as a, as a first step, it, it could be a helpful tool. The second thing I think we need to think about when we're considering investment strategies and business cases is what's the cost of doing nothing? And they could be quite significant. Um, we already know that the FCA is going to increase supervision around vulnerable customers and uh, vulnerable customer outcomes. And if we're not seen to be delivering, then we can expect the FCA to fine companies. Um, and we've already seen a major ring fence bank being fined £6 million for the mishandling of mortgage customers that were in financial difficulties. So we've already got precedent. Secondly, if we are seen to be getting this wrong, then consumers and claims management companies will be looking for redress and remediation. And that's something that we want to avoid as well. So I think there's two very good reasons for us not to be worrying about the costs and focusing more on what's the right thing to be doing. And then I think we should also consider the opportunity. So if we were just to look at the spending power of disabled individuals, which is the so-called purple pound, it's over £200 billion a year. So if we were able to invest in our products and our processes and deliver excellent service to these vulnerable individuals, then a number of things could happen. We could get more engaged consumers. They could uh, take uh, further advantage of the products and services that we've got because arguably they don't always know about them. Um, and also, if we can crack inclusive design, then you could get efficiencies through straight through processing, less mistakes and less complaints. So I think we have to look at the investment in, in the round. And on the whole, I think firms will all have uh, different starting points. They'll all have different ending points. And it will be up to them to decide what they need to deliver for their organisation and what's proportionate. The FCA have said, you know, this is principles based, it's not rules based. So it is within each firm's gift to decide what they need to go away and deliver. Um, and I completely agree with Tim that sometimes the small things can make the biggest difference. When I was at working within a firm, we introduced an accessible debit card now, what, what does that mean? Well, 
it's not it's not an all singing all dancing technological solution it's a piece of plastic that's got a cutout in the side and some raised notches on it and that enables a visually impaired person to know the difference between a library card and a debit card it's not a fintech solution didn't cost a massive amount in fact it's pretty pretty basic but the reality was that the customers really liked it. It met a need. And from a solution perspective, it was pretty quick and easy to deliver. So with improvements doesn't always come the requirement for a lot of data or investment or tech. Sometimes the smallest things can really make a difference. And I think that's what we all need to remember. Okay, Tim and Tim and Bailey, um, you know, in in the past when we didn't have these cost benefit analyses, um, and let's put aside the methodology and you know how accurate we think the the, the cost benefit analysis is, um, firms said, well, we do this because it's it's the right thing, and Fiona's saying firms will continue to say that. However, we we know as soon as our pound signs appear um, and, and budgets are scrutinised that we begin to look at the solutions in perhaps a, a different way. And I wonder, and Steve Perring raises this about uh, fintech and technology, that, that offers us a huge opportunity, but won't we see lots of firms kind of rushing for fintech and technological technological solutions now for vulnerability, just because simply they're cheaper? Yeah, it's oh, a really good... I don't know. Yeah, go on, go Bailey, you go first. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's a good point. I think. Um, that is a danger, like, and, and this comes from a person who runs a fintech that helps vulnerable consumers and sells to banks. So hopefully, like, I can I can reassure <laughs> people in the audience. I think that is part potentially of a much much wider solution. Um, but actually, I think the danger is potentially that you see these pound signs and then you put them against a very specific budget line item in in a big firm that's all about vulnerability and you don't then disperse that um as i was saying before really throughout the organization and make sure that your existing teams have everything they need to, to really put this at the forefront of their thinking and then i'm going to hand over to him who can hopefully <laughs> take it from there <laughs> thanks bailey the uh, my, my thought is this we need to be careful that you don't just latch on to like spending uh, and assuming that like big topics like fintech and everything have got all the answers you know you need to be careful that you don't find that you've bought a load of solutions that are looking for problems and you start with the problem in the first place and i think it's also uh, an easy trap to fall into to assume that anything that moves the needle on this has always got to cost money or be a large investment, which isn't the case. So let's give an example. Uh, let's talk about communications. Um, so like comms, we know that there's you know a whole myriad of ways that you can communicate with consumers. Uh, and we know that um, in certain instances, let's take uh, nosiers, notice of some in arrears, uh, that some of the method of communication is quite complex and in law is dictated in like, how you have to communicate. Yet time and time again, and under the guidance which we saw from Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, like, the way that you position something and the way that you explain it to consumers can have a massive difference 
on how they a perceive it and the action that they take and so you know just as a small example some of this might be around us changing the way that we phrase and use some of our formal mechanisms just to make it simpler and easier to know what we're talking about and what action needs to be taken and that doesn't require you know, vast lots of new technology or investment right um, and i'm not precluding that there will be other areas which you know you know, investment in technology would be helpful. Um, but what I just hate us to do is fall into a trap that just assume that everything has to be a large burdensome cost that makes a difference mm. to you know, good outcomes for vulnerable customers. Yeah, and just just to kind of end that, because that, I could totally agree with Tim and, and Fiona there, um, in that this isn't about technology, this is about so much more, and actually the simplest things can be the, the most important. But what it what it can be about is about specialism um, and design thinking that already has embedded into it like some of these particular audiences and particular needs. So bringing in outside help, bringing in charities and other kinds of third parties, involving people with lived experience of various vulnerable circumstances. Those are all things that can really help um, firms, especially large firms that can move slowly sometimes actually to to get things done in a really efficient way um so i think that's partly where other other parts of the sector can can play a role but it mm. absolutely isn't about an all singing or dancing fintech solution absolutely this is, takes me to i'm going to try and summarize four or five questions that received at once so tony franklin martin jones nicholas atkinson and 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 others uh, have made points about different things be it looking at transaction data or specialist teams, or looking at communications that firms need to be doing around vulnerability. And we've gone from a position where vulnerability, dealing with customers in difficult circumstances, was at many extent uh, kind of uh, contained within collections. And we've seen it grow over the years to being a whole organization strategy. So just for a final thought from each of you, starting with Tim, then to Fiona, and then to Bailey, how should firms get a grip of this how do you have one person holding the operational tension uh how do you coordinate the different aspects because there's clearly a huge ask on firms tim how are you doing it at capital one so uh me and my uh great small team kind of coordinate and lead the charge on a lot of topics but what we recognize is that if you have just single points of excellence and dependency then you're never going to get to the deeply embedded culture and so you know you need someone to champion it and get it going you need examples of how uh, this can work and can benefit and it really it's a cultural change program right mm -hmm. so you need to get some early wins and then you need to start dispersing all of that through the organization and really the target destination is that this just gets embedded in the roles and the jobs of everyone who is making decisions or uh, supporting the good servicing of all customers Perfect. and you know we are way down that uh, line thank you uh, exactly fiona 15 seconds what should firms do this is principles-based regulation. And as a result, there's no black and white, hard and fast rules that firms need to deliver on. Firms are going to need to interpret this guidance and work out what it means for them. They need to baseline their current activity and they need to set the strategic direction. 
they also need to work out what KPIs they're going to use to be able to monitor their progress because they're going to need to be able to demonstrate that when they have supervisory meetings with the FCA. And Bailey, your 10 seconds worth. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to echo those two. So to make it a true strategic priority, wouldn't it be great if we could, over the next few months, see CEOs and people really high up in these organisations publicly stating their commitment, telling the public how they're going to do these things, particularly as we go into what is going to be a really tough time mm. in the economy in the UK. Thank you, Bailey. And with that, thank you, everybody. We've reached the end, end sadly. If you want to find out more about our work, go to moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. If you want to hear podcasts and other vulnerability related subjects, search for Vulnerability Matters on your podcast platform of choice. So until we speak again, thank you very much, Fiona Turner, Tim Hawley, Bailey Kersal for their expertise and time, uh, our studio audience for their, their huge amount of questions and contributions, and to yourself for listening. Thank you. <laughs>